There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to The Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, here we are again for our episode 35. Wow, that's pretty amazing. It seems like just yesterday we started. Seems like just six plus months ago we started, kind of like <laughs> lockdowns. But last week we focused our attention on our annual letter to investors. And that was a fun conversation around using the word grit to describe last year and how people responded to, I don't know, global economic shutdown and coronavirus and all those things and what an incredibly tough time it was. And I guess it leads to the question of what did we learn in March? Have we as investors made any adjustments since those learnings or do we need to? And so today we're going to talk about this idea of teaching an old dog new tricks, kind of a discussion about investment philosophy or philosophies and how those differ from investment strategies. Because they're different, right? They are. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Now, we should note that this episode will be published or released or whatever the correct term is on January 20th. And the significance of January 20th is that it is the inauguration day for President-elect Joe Biden. And I'm really hoping for a calmer day that day than the one we saw on January 6th and that our listeners get to actually enjoy the show on January 20th, and we don't have other, I don't know, bigger distractions on TV. Seems like it's been a long, long time since we watched the last inauguration, and even though it was only four years ago. It's been a fair bit that's happened in that time. There's been a lot that's happened in that time. It seems like not that long ago, yet seems like a lifetime ago at the same time. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. So let's get into it, Greg. Tell us about investment philosophy. Well, okay. So let's talk about investment philosophy. And philosophy is kind of a belief. If you have a philosophy, it means you have a belief system about something. And in this case, we're talking about what is our belief system about investment or what is a belief system and investment philosophy. And that also gets into investment style. It's basically, it's a fund manager's or an individual investor's particular approach or belief in investing. What do they look for? What's their belief about how they should invest their money? And there's many different approaches. Some people may focus on companies with promising earnings prospects. So they look at the fundamentals of the company and say, okay, well, how do we expect the company's earnings to grow over time? Others seek out underpriced stocks or value stocks. Those would be companies that maybe are trading at low prices relative to their inherent value. Or you may focus on businesses that produce things that are in strong demand. So looking at some of the growth companies. So a philosophy is just a coherent way of thinking about the markets, how they operate, and the types of mistakes that a person believes are common features of investment behavior. And so we've got this concept of investment philosophy, and then we also have things like investment behavior. Now, investment strategy is much narrower than investment behavior. So when we put our investment philosophy into practice, 
that becomes our investment strategy. So the philosophy is, what do we believe about how the markets behave and how stocks operate? And the strategy is, how do we implement that into actual an investment portfolio? And sometimes the strategy no longer seems to be effective. We may go back to our investment philosophy to see if we need to revisit that or if we need to find a new strategy to accomplish our belief system. And we went through this together. I remember during the global credit crisis, we had an investment philosophy that is similar to the one we share today, which is the fundamentals about being diversified, focusing on asset allocation, things like that. But our strategy was more, I don't know, individual stock, individual bond specific, very Canadian heavy weighted. So what did we learn after the global credit crisis is that we needed to adjust our strategy yet still have the philosophy of focusing on asset allocation and being diversified. Exactly right. An investment philosophy, it's actually crucial to have one. A lot of experts will say that a person without an investment philosophy can have risks of jumping from one strategy to another strategy and changing the portfolio too frequently, which results in paying more in trading costs, maybe paying more in taxes without actually advancing your investment progress. So when you look at investment philosophies, they all have some elements in common. So obviously, most of us are looking for a positive return on our investments. Anything other would be a little counterproductive. If you're considering building or creating your own philosophy, the first key conviction should be, I'm placing my money in this investment because I think I can have a positive return. And again, maybe it sounds simplistic, but obviously that has to be the number one goal. Now, there's a few risks of not having an investment philosophy because you might find yourself lacking a rudder or a core of set of beliefs. You might be easy prey for charlatans or pretenders, different people claiming to have found the magic strategy that beats the market. And we see that all the time. Well, we've come up with a new strategy and we've back-tested it. And had we used this for the last 100 years, we would have beaten the market by 3% a year. And it sounds very enticing. And without having a philosophy to fall back on, you could certainly find yourself being driven in different directions. When you switch from strategy to strategy, you have to change your portfolio, again, resulting in high transaction costs and more taxes. And you may end up with a strategy that may not be appropriate for you, given objectives, your risk aversion, personal characteristics. And you may find yourself with a portfolio that underperforms the market, and you might find yourself with an ulcer or some sort of (laughs) mental stress or anxiety that comes from not really having a core set of beliefs. Well, and I had a call this week with a client and they were telling me that their son, who's married, how can I say this? Their son's in-laws had invested something like $5,000 into a stock that somebody told them about. That $5,000 doubled in size to $10,000. And so now their son has fallen into this trap that he believes that they should just be able to replicate this on an ongoing basis. So that's not having a philosophy. That's just speculating. It's not even really a strategy. Well, and it's not long-term. It's very short-term transactional oriented. And it's really the difference between speculating and investing. Speculating is just buying a stock that you believe the price will be higher, hopefully in the very near term. Investing is placing your money with a ideally a large group of companies that all have the ability to 
increase their earnings, their profitability over time and result in higher stock prices. So lots of things can move stock prices in the short term, but in the long term, it tends to be more based on economic and business growth. That's a real trap that a lot of people, when they start speculating, it's almost better if they have a poor experience right out of the gate, because then they'll maybe not think that that's the key to success. Well, and hopefully it will be a small loss at some point if it's right out of the gate versus you're doing it over and over again and taking bigger bets. Exactly. Let's talk about some common investment philosophies. So some of the ones that, and we've discussed these over many of our podcasts in various forms, but the ones I think about are market timing versus asset selection. So market timing, we've spent a lot of time on, and we fully believe that it is impossible to time markets. There are some things that you can do strategically around market timing that aren't specific to market timing, like things like rebalancing, where you're not actually timing a market or its direction, but you're taking some money off the table when things go up and investing with in things that are down. But there's active versus passive investing is another common philosophy. There's people on both sides of that camp that are very passionate and will argue at great length that active investing is the way to go or passive investing is the only way to go. And those are just each of their philosophies. And there's some philosophies that focus around time horizon, which is probably one of the more critical ones. So this son of this client whose in-laws bought this stock, that sounds like a real tongue twister, by the way, but that doubled in value (laughs) that's not a long time period, time horizon strategy. That's just a, it was just chance. It was like buying a lottery ticket or a scratch ticket and you did well. It doesn't mean that you can go and buy another scratch ticket and win another $5,000. Right, exactly. That's right. So some examples of investment philosophies would be contrarian investing. This one always gets me because I remember the first time I was told about contrarian investing and how much it made sense to me, Greg, like to invest when everybody else is scared, to put money in when everybody else is fearful, or to sell when everybody else is elated makes sense. But when you ask the average number of investors, do they think that they're contrarian? On average, most of them would say they're contrarian. Yeah, But how can the average number of investors all be contrarian if it just doesn't make sense from math. Well, that's right. And the problem with, and again, listen, these are just different philosophies and the people that follow them are believers. And it's important to follow a belief system when you invest. And a lot of these different strategies, like you mentioned, changing asset allocation or market timing. Sometimes when you see how investors describe themselves, you'll get a feel for what they mean. Like, so if they talk about sector rotation, well, that's a market timing strategy. That's just, that's basically saying, okay, well, let's get out of this sector, which we think has done well, and let's move all of our stuff over to another sector, which we think is doing poorly right now. So a lot of these strategies are market timing strategies. And the same with contrarian investing. Basically, it's saying, okay, well, everyone's running from stocks. Now's a good time to buy them. Everybody's running from bonds. Now's a good time to buy them. And you know what? It's a strategy that probably will work fairly well over time, but it tends to be really focused in on very short time periods when people become contrarian investors. So for example, if stocks go up 60 or 70% of the time, then if you're being contrarian and not in stocks for 60, 70% of the time, there's going to be a whole lot of time that you're out of the market. And so 
when looking at an investment philosophy, you want to make sure that it's something that will last over time. Yeah, it's got to work for you. So some of the other common ones are value investing. You mentioned this, and we did a recent podcast episode on value investing, and that's a very common philosophy, but just as common as growth investing. So there are people that believe in momentum strategies. And again, I think that the misclassification or the misunderstanding here is that strategy is not philosophy. Philosophy comes first. Strategy is how you sort of implement the philosophy. And then the tactics around it would be like what securities you actually implement them in. Exactly. So whether it's value investing or growth investing, you have to start with your philosophy. Another one that we did a whole episode on is socially responsible investing or ESG. That one is getting a lot of attention these days. But if you are truly investing in a socially responsible investing manner, and that is your philosophy, you must accept that you might not get market returns all the time. That's right. And socially responsible investing, I think, is based on a belief that over time, companies that do well from an environmental or social or governance standpoint will do well and their stock prices will benefit from that. And so, again, it's important that you have to look at this. This is a long-term belief. And people that are investing on a socially responsible way might miss out on certain short-term happenings in the market where they're on the sidelines or not involved in those types of sort of gains, let's say. Or they've got to adjust their expectations. That's right. But again, it's a belief and a philosophy. And to be honest, it's important to have one. Of course. And that's a good one. And it's certainly becoming more and more topical as time goes on. But as you said, there is a trade-off. And a couple of years ago, you and I went and presented to a large organization that had a very big SRI component or socially responsible investing component around their expectations. This is a religious group for a large amount of money they wanted to have invested in. They're very specific about they couldn't have anything, for example, oil and gas related. They couldn't have anything. I don't know. They're very specific on what would comply and what wouldn't, yet their expectations were to have higher than market returns. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And you know what? In the end, who knows? Maybe they will and maybe they won't. Right. But they have a very strong belief system, and it's important that they follow that belief system in their investment strategies. Lastly, in this section, fundamental investing. You mentioned this earlier. and The fundamentals of looking at a company's growth, revenues, earnings, management, capital structure, anything that is fundamental about the company and is focused on the business and maybe an earnings potential out of that business. So for fundamental investing, you see commonly hear people talk about price earnings multiples or price to book or other various types of ratios. That's right. And maybe I'll just add one more in because it's kind of the other side of fundamental investing, and that is technical trading or technical investing. People that are technical traders or have a technical trading philosophy believe that it's the action of stocks and the behavior of stock prices, they believe you can get clues for what the future behavior is going to look like based on the past behavior of stocks relative to the way the markets and individual stocks have performed over the last 100 years. So technical investing is another investment philosophy. Let me ask you this, Greg. I know this is a little off the cuff, but if our theme is teaching an old dog new tricks, and if you run across somebody who's 
very specific around their philosophy being value or growth or SRI or fundamental. And let's say it was March 23rd of last year. And these were technical traders using fundamental analysis for market timing. Can that person actually relearn or learn to invest in a different way? Well, it's an interesting question. And I guess when you look at the behavior of markets over time, and when you consider the fact that all bear markets have eventually been erased by subsequent bull markets, then you may find that all sorts of people with all sorts of different philosophies and beliefs about investing will eventually be right to some extent, meaning that by investing in stocks, eventually they're, as long as they're diversified enough, eventually they will do well, just as the markets have done well over time. And you find that fund managers who are growth managers, they will be growth managers for their entire careers. And fund managers who are value managers will be value managers for their entire careers. What that speaks to is just sticking with strategies and belief systems that have worked for them over time. But you may find that they work at different times than the other types of strategies. So growth managers will not always be successful and value managers will not always be successful in any one short or medium term. But over the long term, they may all be successful to some extent. If they stick to their if they strategy. Stick to their, absolutely. And don't waver, what do they call it? Style drift. Style drift is where you're invested in a certain way and it goes offside. And then what do you do about it? That's right. Or in layman's terms, I had somebody say to me, style drift is like, that period of time in between getting a haircut, which I remember getting haircuts before the pandemic. It was a luxury item. It's a luxury item now. It's very hard to come by. But style drift is like, if you get your haircut every four to six weeks, what does your hair look like at week three? It's drifted. <laughs> Always comes back to the hair, doesn't it? <laughs> I remember getting haircuts too, but that was only when I actually had hair that needed to be cut. So thanks for bringing that up. Look at all the money you're saving. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Haircuts and shampoo. No problem. (laughs) Let's move on a little bit to talk about investor risk preferences and how that ties in with investment strategy and philosophy. So most, if not all investors are risk averse. And in order to get them to take more risk, there have to be higher expected returns along with that, which is when you think about it, the basis of capitalism. Why would anybody take more risk if there was no expectation of a higher return? And conversely, if investors want higher expected returns, they have to be willing to take more risk. And we've talked about risk as well in previous podcasts. So in order to define how much risk you're willing to take, you need a quantitative measure. And most investors don't have that. They don't have a quantitative measure of how much risk they want to take. Traditional risk and return models in finance tend to measure risk in terms of volatility or standard deviation, as opposed to what are the chances you're going to lose your money, which is really how investors think. But whether we measure risk in quantitative terms or qualitative terms, basically investors are risk averse by nature. And the degree of risk aversion varies. When you look across a wide range of investors, it'll vary at any particular point in time. And for the same investor across time as a function of their age or wealth or income or their health. So really you can approach it in two ways. And here's one proposition, the more risk averse an investor, the less his or her portfolio should be in risky assets such as stocks. Now, actually, I've got something I want to mention on that. 
let's say you're a novice investor, you go into a bank branch and you're given a brochure to fill out that identifies how much risk you're willing to take and the market is in a bull market. Don't you tend to see people say that they can take more risk in their portfolios? Sure. And then that market sells off. Then the true measure of risk is actually identified by people like, then you get questions, maybe I shouldn't have been invested in all those stocks or whatever at that time. And I think that's part of the problem is those risk assessment questionnaires that you tend to see out there. They really deal with things like, oh, if your portfolio was to decline in value by 15%, would you stick to your original investment strategy? And 15%, people don't think of it in real terms. You'd say, yeah, I guess 15% sounds reasonable. But if you express that in dollars relative to their portfolio, if somebody has a million dollar portfolio, how would you feel if you lost $150,000 in a very short period of time? I think the answer might be very different. And what we've seen in practice is when that has happened during a number of bear markets that we've all lived through, people's emotions tend to get the better of them. And you tend to find out what their real risk tolerance is. Right on. And it goes to the second point, investor time horizon. So time horizon can play a big part in what people are invested in, how comfortable they are. Somebody that has a very long time horizon who doesn't need to pull any money from their portfolio during many market cycles, very little need for cash, their risk tolerance is going to be much different than somebody who has a, I don't know, not a shorter time horizon, but a different time horizon. Maybe their portfolio is set up to provide income. Maybe it's their form of a pension. So whatever their time horizon is will influence both kinds of assets that investors will hold in their portfolio, those assets being stocks or bonds and what degree or maybe even cash. So the second proposition is the longer the time horizon of an investor, the greater the proportion of the portfolio that should be in so-called risky investments such as equities. And that's only because they can withstand many market cycles. That's exactly right. And again, it really comes down to a combination of philosophy and really a good understanding of your own internal ability to withstand financial losses. Because you need to believe that in the long run, those losses will be erased in order to be able to take on that greater proportion of high-risk assets in a portfolio. Right on. Well, there's one other thing that we do want to talk about with regards to investment strategy coming out of an investment philosophy, and that is just the tax status. Because when you think about it, investors can only spend after-tax returns. And so taxes do affect portfolio compositions. And the portfolio that's right for an investor who pays no taxes might not be right for an investor who pays substantial taxes. And that also comes down to kind of the difference between, let's say, a registered or tax-deferred account like an RSP, or better yet, a tax-free savings account, as opposed to an account where you are responsible for paying taxes on all income or dividends earned. And there's a lot of planning that goes around that. So when we're doing financial planning with people and, I don't know, strategic investment planning, there's a reason why you hold certain assets in tax-deferred accounts and why you hold certain assets in taxable accounts. Exactly right. And so one part of the portfolio will be structured a lot differently exactly for that reason. And there's other effects of taxes on portfolios that are even more complicated. So you've got, say, the different treatment of current income from interest income from bonds, let's say, as opposed to tax treatment on dividends or capital gains in a non-registered account. 
and there's different tax rates on different portions of savings. So just when you take that investment philosophy and implement it as an investment strategy, these are some of the other considerations you have to take into account. Yeah. And we had Jamie Gollum back on our show in one of the earlier episodes, and he mentioned some tax changes that are probably going to occur that have nothing to do with your investment account, but things like principal residence might start being taxed at some point or some tax strategy from the government to basically, I don't know, pay off all of this debt that they're accumulating because taxes will be with us forever. I'm afraid so. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about common mistakes in philosophy and investment strategy. Like investors are prone to making errors in managing their investments from a philosophical point of view and from a strategic point of view. So Greg, start us off with one or two of these. The first one I would say goes back to what we've talked before, and that is a basic understanding of return and risk and the fact that low risk cannot ever be high expected return and vice versa. Okay, you cannot invest with certainty with guaranteed principal repayment and expect a high return on that. It would be great if you could. We'd all do it. And that in itself would force returns down. That's just the fundamental nature. Probably goes to the number two is a vaguely formulated investment policy. So we use investment policy statements when we're dealing with accounts. And the reason for it is it's to outline exactly how much risk is appropriate for that investor. And that will dictate the strategy, even though we already know the philosophy. That's right. Exactly. And another one would be what I'd call just kind of a naive extrapolation of what's happened in the past. So just because some event happened in the past and the result was X, let's say, doesn't mean that you can extrapolate that and say with any kind of conviction that that's exactly what will happen in the future. We've seen lots of examples of that, whether it's by picking sectors of the market, oil and gas in Alberta has always been a big one. It's always done well in the past. It's going to continue to do well in the future where I'm just going to invest in even some philosophies, again, may not have the kind of results in the next five years, say, that they did in the previous five years. Let's just do a couple more. Over-diversification and under-diversification is one that I would point out. Over-diversification, let me be clear on this. If you have an investor and they have, I don't know, three mutual funds that are investing in the same marketplace, it really means you have three fund managers almost trading against each other, which is different than just owning the market in that marketplace. So there's a whole bunch of things that could come from that one, right, Greg? That's right. And so I think what we're talking about here is getting true diversification. And so true diversification doesn't result in a sort of exposure to the same names or what have you. It's being broadly diversified. And that's what we talk about, obviously, all the time. And the flip side to that is under diversification. That's that holding highly concentrated positions, maybe a handful of companies or a handful of bonds, whatever the case might be. You're not diversified. You just hold a few different things. Exactly. And here's one more. People sometimes have the wrong attitude towards losses and profits. And that's another behavioral bias that we've talked about in the past, the loss aversion bias. And people don't want to sell things that are at a loss necessarily because they want to wait until their investment got back at least to zero. And they're far more likely to want to sell something at a profit, which might be the part of the market that's actually doing well. Or there may be another case where they don't want to sell winners or winning investments because they're worried about the income tax. 
that they'll have to pay. So there's a lot of issues that can come up <laughs> if you don't have a clear philosophy as with regards to how you're going to deal with profits and losses in the future. That one always gets me. The well, I don't want to sell that. Look at all the tax I'm going to pay. What are you going to do? Wait for it to go down and get rid of all that gain? <laughs> like, exactly. Just so you don't have to pay tax? I mean, personally, I'd rather take the gain. Now, I know they're, I mean, we're being a little flippant about it. And there are some real consequences if somebody is over 65 and they've got OAS or old age security pension payments. And maybe it does push them up the tax bracket and it starts to claw back at their OAS payments. But that's an extreme situation. But it seems crazy to not want to sell something just because you're going to pay some tax on it. Well, that's right. And it's something that basically should not be part of an investment philosophy discussion, really. It should be a part of a planned implementation of your philosophy and that can deal with potential taxes and that kind of thing down the road. Let's wrap up with one last one here on mistakes people make. It has to do with speculation. People have a tendency to speculate. And that is what we talked about, buying a stock, just a one-off scenario. I would say, save that activity for the casino. That's right. Because that's not something that you can live with or you can handle over the long periods of time that we need to be able to invest in. Speculation tends to be very short-term in nature and cannot really form the basis of a long-term investment philosophy. So Greg, what can investors do? What did we learn today? What should people focus on? What I would sum up with is a quote from David Booth, who's the executive chairman and founder of Dimensional Fund Advisors. And he says this a lot. He basically says, the most important thing about an investment philosophy is that you have one you can stick with. And I think that really sums it up. I mean, it doesn't matter in many cases what specific investment philosophy you have, as long as over long periods of time through market cycles, you can stick with it. And in almost all cases, as I discussed earlier, if you have that philosophy and stick with it, and of course it's rational and reasonable, you can probably expect reasonable outcomes over time. Right on. Now, Greg, next week we are going to be talking about TFSA and RSP accounts. And I bring this up because it is part of this discussion we were just having about strategically which accounts are best to hold certain securities in once you've established your philosophy, of course, the one that you're going to stick with. And so next week, Blair Howell is going to be joining us to discuss this because on January 28th, we are hosting a webinar on just that, the difference between RSP or RRIF or RIF accounts and the benefits of tax-free savings accounts, having each of them, what fits in what, the difference. And again, it doesn't negate your philosophy. This gets more to the tactics of it. Right on. And we're certainly at that time of year where people are making their TFSA contributions, thinking about completing their RSP contributions for last year. If they haven't done so, we have till the end of February and trying to decide if we have to make a choice. Do I choose between a tax-free savings account or an RSP? And how do I make that decision? So that'll be a good one. That will be a good one. Now let's wrap it up here for fun. What are you doing? What are you watching, reading, doing? We're all caught up on a show called Your Honor, which I believe, I don't know if you've seen that. And so it turns out the main character happens to be the main character who was in Breaking Bad. I told you about this show last show. Did you tell me about that last week? (laughs) (laughs) I followed your advice and it seems to be going down a similar path. It's an excellent show, but of course, very dark and very anxiety producing as you watch it. So thanks for mentioning it. I'm glad that you watched it. 
I've been watching, continuing to watch The Crown. My wife and I have, are uh, the last two or three episodes of season four. That's a really good show too. It's a great show. It may not be completely factual, but it's very entertaining. I'd like to see what the royal family thinks about that show, actually. <laughs> and are you still reading that thousand-page book that you started? I think I've advanced about 50 pages in the last week. I could be at this until the summer, but I'll keep you apprised of all developments on that front. <laughs> well, I've been reading Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey, and it's actually a, it's a fun read. It's easy to read. It's I'd recommend it. It's a good book. You know, it's funny that this year of pandemic and people being stuck at home, you would think that I would have enough time to have read 20 or 30 books over the last several months. And it's amazing how, as you know now, having a number of animals in the house, it does tend to occupy your time. And for some reason, I don't have all that spare time that other people are talking about. Sometimes you just got to take it though. I guess. I got to tell you, I'm going to wrap up with one last thing. I took some spare time to myself. I took it back. And I've been teaching myself how to snowboard. And it's been well, a lot of you. fun. Right on. So finding time is a challenge, of course, with animals and kids and pandemics and work and stuff. But man, why not find a little time to do something you want to do, right? Kind of like teaching an old dog a new trick. Exactly. I am that old dog. And this is my new trick for sure. Well, great. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us today on the free lunch. Craig, any parting thoughts? No, just be safe out there and we'll look forward to having you on the show next time. Exactly. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the free lunch podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.